Welcome to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, your source for learning more about fly fishing in cold water, warm water, and salt water. Hello, I'm Roger Maves, your host for tonight's show. On this broadcast, we'll be featuring Matthew Miller, and he'll be answering your questions on Silver Creek, the legend and its future. This show will be 90 minutes in length, and we are broadcasting live over the Internet. If you'd like to ask Matt a question, just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and use the Q&A text box to send us your question. We'll receive your question immediately, and we'll try to answer as many of them as possible on the show tonight. And while you're there, make sure you sign up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. Just fill out the form on the right side of our homepage, and we'll let you know when the next live show will be. This broadcast is being recorded and will be available for playback on our website about 48 hours after the show ends. You can also find it on any of the podcast distribution sites like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. So if you have to leave early, you can return to our website or any of the podcast platforms at your convenience and listen to the recording at any time. If you're out and about on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, we'd sure appreciate it if you'd share our podcast. And when you do, use the hashtag AskAboutFlyFishing and hashtag FlyFishing. In fact, if you have a moment, do it right now and let other people know that we're having this great interview here tonight. The content of this broadcast is copyrighted and is the property of the Knowledge Group, Inc., doing business as Ask About Fly Fishing. When we return, we'll be talking with Matthew Miller about Silver Creek, the legend and its future. Whether you want to catch your first permit in Belize, tame a giant tarpon in the Florida Keys, or wrestle a mint-bright Atlantic salmon in eastern Canada, Gill's Fly Fishing International's well-traveled booking team has the knowledge to make it happen. They consider trust to be the single most important aspect of their work. They only book locations that they know, meaning proven operations providing the right mix of great fishing, comfortable accommodation, and high integrity. Get in touch today to start planning your next fly fishing adventure. Visit flyfishinginternational.com or call them at 780-665-4943. Again, that's flyfishinginternational.com or call them at 780-665-4943. Before we introduce Matt, we'd like to let you know about the great prizes we have to give away tonight. For our drawing tonight, we'll be giving away a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International and a one-year membership to Trout Unlimited. Now, if you haven't registered yet for the drawing, you can do so now. Just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and look for the link under Matt's section that says register for our free drawing. Click on that link and fill out the form, and we'll announce the winners at the end of the show. We'll also be giving away a copy of a book, courtesy of Stackpole Books. So I have a list of books that I have permission to give away, and if you are the lucky winner, I'll send you the list of books, and you can pick whichever one makes you happy. So the way you win is to listen, take good notes during the show. And when I ask the question at the end of the show, it's going to be something that Matt and I have talked about during the show. And just put in your answer and your name, your location in that form on the homepage. It's the same form where you can ask questions during the show. And if you are the first person to answer and you have the correct answer, then you will win a book from Stackpole Books. So Pay attention, take notes, type fast, and hopefully you'll win the book tonight. Our guest tonight is Matthew Miller. Matt is the Director of Science Communications for the Nature Conservancy and editor-lead writer for the organization's popular 
Cool Green Science blog. He is also author of the book Fishing Through the Apocalypse and published by Lions Press and recipient of the Jade Award, the highest conservation honor of the Outdoor Writers Association of America. His work has appeared in Fly Fisherman, Fly Fishing and Tying Journal, Field and Stream, Sports the Field, and many other outdoor publications. A native of central Pennsylvania and graduate of Penn State, Matt has lived in Idaho for the past 21 years. An avid naturalist and outdoor enthusiast, he has covered stories on science and nature around the globe. Matt is currently trying to catch a fish in every U.S. state. He's at number 33 and enjoys exploring public lands and wild spaces near and far with his wife and young son. Matt, welcome to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. Well, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, great to have you. Great to have you. And I think uh, most all of us are great fans of the Nature Conservancy and kind of, I'm kind of jealous of your job, but <laughs> I think it's a great job, a great, great organization to be part of and work for, I would think. So, and I imagine you do too, but so, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's it was a dream job when I started and it remains two decades later. Two decades you've been with them. Wow. Yes. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, when did they start, by the way? What year did they start? It's, um, yeah, going on 70, coming up on 75 years. 75 years? The organization? Yes. I didn't realize yeah. it was that old. Yes. Oh, I didn't. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. Older than I am. <laughs> that's pretty darn old. Okay. So, um, yeah, great. Well, now, I don't know if your first experience with Silver Creek was through the Nature Conservancy or not, but why don't you tell us about your, you know, your first experience with that fishery? Yeah, it actually was, and I, you know, I just mentioned I've worked here for well, 21 years to be exact, and before that, I had been a publicity writer for a performing arts center, and I had struggled as a freelance writer, but. Since I was 12 years old, I've wanted to be a nature and outdoor writer and communicator. And I was offered a job with the Nature Conservancy's Idaho chapter. And when I interviewed for the job was the first time I had set foot in Idaho. But I had read extensively since the time I could read on outdoor sports, on fishing, on hunting. And so I knew Silver Creek. I had read everything by Ernest Hemingway, and so I began the job, and during my first day on the job, I was assigned to write about Silver Creek. I had not been there yet. Oh, oh wow. <laughs> uh, I uh, was assigned to write a press release about a conservation easement, and then a couple of days later, my wife and I drove up there because the Idaho chapter headquarters was there, and... So my third night, third day on the job, I stayed at Ernest Hemingway's home, which the Nature Conservancy then owned. I slept in Ernest's bed, and I thought, wow, can it get any better? And <laughs> fished the, uh, the Bigwood River below the Hemingway house. And then the next day, I went to Silver Creek. And, you know, I cannot tell you much about the fishing. I did fish that day, but... I stepped into that creek and I looked around. It, you know, it's crystal clear water. There are fish rising. There were mule deer in the foothills. And it was 
just like every dream I had as a kid. Like it was all touching down right there. And I thought, wow, I, one, that this is, you know, the opportunity you've been waiting for. That's what I told myself. And two, you know, don't blow it. And so, you know, <laughs> I'd like to think I haven't. I've, I've been with the Conservancy for 21 years. And I, Silver Creek, you know, I, I've been able to cover conservation projects literally all over the world. I've visited many of them, but Silver Creek is still the one that, you know, is closest to my heart. And also, it is the one I've written the most about. You know, it's the first place I wrote about as a Nature Conservancy employee. And it's one that, you know, I continue to return to in part because I think it is such a rich conservation story. And there's always something changing, which we will talk about over the course of the next 90 minutes. Mm -hmm. Well, I was going to ask you what makes it special for you. Obviously, your first experience and the Hemingway experience is, uh, has had to make it very special to you. But what beyond that initial experience has made it special to you? Well, I think part of it is, like, as when you get to know any special place, there's always surprises and always new ways of seeing it. I think of the time Dana Gross, who was the preserve manager at the time, invited me to snorkel the creek. Um, now, that is something that we did, you know, as a way to check out just what was going on under the water, but just all of a sudden seeing it through that view and realizing, like, well, one, sometimes I was just fishing in totally the wrong place, but also just the richness of the aquatic life and what is feeding those fish um, that makes Silver Creek so famous. But I've had many moments like that where it's just like, wow, I had not considered this before. You know, I didn't really know this was going on and so there's always a surprise there just when you think you have it figured out you know Silver Creek throws you a curveball well and that's whether you're talking about fishing or wildlife or you know just walking around the place now is it's referred to as a spring creek is it actually a spring creek or is it just act like a spring creek so to speak yeah it is you know, it, it's really a complex system. It is a spring creek, although it originates from several tributary streams. And by the time it gets to the preserve, it has that character of what you associate with a classic spring creek. So, mm -hmm. you know, very clear waters, you know, rich aquatic life. And hard then, you know, yeah, very hard to fish. <laughs> and, and, you know, downstream it changes character again. And so, you know, a lot of what I will be referring to as we talk, the, the default is the preserve, just because I think that's what where a lot of anglers want to fish. But I'll also reference, you know, some of the other sections where you might find something that you aren't expecting from a spring creek. You know, it's right. quite silty. In some places, it even feels more like a freestone river. Okay. 
Okay. Now tell us, because we do have an international audience and not everybody knows where Silver Creek is, uh, can you tell the folks where it is and give us a little geography lesson? Yes. Yeah, so Silver Creek is located in south-central Idaho. It is south of the resort communities, Sun Valley, Ketchum, and Haley. And it's not really near any big cities. It's about two hours east of Boise. And that's the closest, you know, major city. But it's um, long been associated with Sun Valley and Ketchum and part of that resort community there. It is a few hours from some of the famous waters to the east, you know, the Henry's Fork, Yellowstone, the Madison. So many anglers include it as part of a longer road trip. Mm-hmm. Um, I say sometimes. You know, anglers come to Silver Creek to get frustrated, and then they head elsewhere to actually catch fish. So you can or do both to, on one trip. <laughs> or go over to Henry's Fork and get frustrated, too. <laughs> there, yeah, there's lots of opportunities to get frustrated in Idaho. But the mountains are not far away, and there are there's just about anything you could want in Idaho. There are the little... Cutthroat streams where fishing is more stalking. That's the hardest part of it. There are mountain lakes where you can hike in and catch, you know, all kinds of different species. Um, right. So right. there's a tremendous variety here. Yeah. Tell us, I mean, you brought up the fact that Ernest Hemingway is associated with Silver Creek. Can you give us a little history about that? And I was curious, you said, when you said you stayed in his house, but it sounded like the Conservancy doesn't own it anymore. So can you kind of go into that? Yeah, yeah. So uh, the Hemingway history, as a, a big fan of Hemingway's writing, is really fascinating and intertwined with Silver Creek. So in the 1930s, you could say that Silver Creek was a destination stream before we used the term destination stream. So the Sun Valley Resort had opened, and they had the idea that to get publicity, they would invite celebrities to come and ski and hunt birds and fish, you know, do the whole range of outdoor activities. And there were a number of celebrities at the time who visited there and generated that publicity. Gary Cooper was one, but Ernest Hemingway became the most famous and enduring name associated with it. He worked on For Whom the Bell Tolls at the Sun Valley Resort, but he also spent a lot of time at Silver Creek, which at that point was part of the resort. Hmm. And a lot of people, they always think of Ernest being this great fly fisher. The reality is, like, there's the big two-hearted river, which is a famous story, but a lot of the fishing that Ernest did was for big game. You know, he was always into the macho pursuit. So it was all about Cuba and salt you know, water. Yeah. yeah, salt water and not so much fly fishing. However, and so when he went to Silver Creek, he was hunting ducks, he was hunting pheasants in the nearby fields. But his son, Jack, loved fly fishing. And Jack went to Silver Creek, and this is an experience that many of us still have to this day. He looked out, and there were just rising fish everywhere, and he got very excited. And 
then he, he started casting and quickly that turned to frustration and he got absolutely whooped and he walked away thinking like wow that place is incredibly difficult but I can't wait to go back and figure this place out and he did and when the resort put that part of its property up for sale he was the one who went to the nature conservancy in 1976 and said you have to buy this you have to buy this property and it was a much smaller the nature conservancy was a much smaller organization then but they did and it's become it's remained really one of its you know we call it a legacy preserve you know a, a place mm. that's really typifies what we do and also I think is a showcase for our work. And because of the Nature Conservancy's stewardship of that property, when Mary Hemingway passed away, she stayed in the Hemingway house in Ketchum. It was willed to the Nature Conservancy. Oh. It is in our residential neighborhood and by agreement with the neighbors, there were not tours. And so, and the, the Nature Conservancy is not a historical preservation society, but they kept it for a number of years waiting for the, the best opportunity. And the, it was then transferred to the, the Ketchum Library. And they are doing oh. an absolutely phenomenal job of stewarding that property. They use it for writing retreats and Oh, writers, nice. workshops, yeah. and yeah, it's a, a really great future for that property as well. Oh, good, good. Can you kind of give us a tour of Silver Creek? You had mentioned the Conservancy has the, the preserve area, which they're, you know, kind of, uh, well, preserving, right, and conserving. But how does that fit into the bigger fishery? There's water upstream, water downstream? Can you kind of describe what's going on there? Yeah, so the, the main stem of Silver Creek forms on the preserve. Okay. Uh, with some, you know, where the tributaries come together and form the main stem of Silver Creek. And it is an interesting place geologically, especially if you're coming from Yellowstone or points east. Because to get there, you drive through, the most likely route is Highway 20, and you drive through a place called Craters of the Moon National Monument, which is just as it sounds. It is lava fields. And it's been a, a series of lava eruptions over thousands of years. And so there are places where it looks like the moon, so just lava. And as you pass through this, you're starting to get close to the preserve. And so, you know, you look to the north, and it's sagebrush-covered hills. You look out ahead, and it's lava. And I've had friends who have done this trip, and they're like, they're thinking, there's a, we're, this ends with a trout stream? <laughs> and right up until the point you get to the preserve, you have the feeling of being in the high desert, because you are, and... You turn on to Kilpatrick Bridge Road, which runs through the preserve, and it remains very dry. And all of a sudden, here you are at this spring creek. And so 
one, it, at first it can be kind of jarring. It does not look like necessarily a place you would find trout. Not the creek, but I mean just the general habitat there. But it also creates this you know, tremendous oasis of life. You know, birds, all kinds of wildlife are drawn there because it is this ribbon going through the, through the high desert. As you go downstream, it becomes a mix of private property, but there are some fishing game access points, like Point of Rocks and Silver Creek West, which also offer really great fishing. And then as it goes past the town of Peekaboo, there's another access point at Priest Rapids where it becomes more like a Freestone River. And But... I think of the heart of the heart of Silver Creek, you know, others might disagree, as the preserve. The entire main stem has a lot of conservation easements on it. Uh, the, the Nature Conservancy has worked with private landowners, and so what that means is that there are development restrictions. So the view you see looking downstream is much the view you will see for years to come because okay. – the landowners have voluntarily agreed to not develop that. And that accounts for 12,000 acres of land in total. Oh, wow. Wow, yeah. Yeah, um, Jim in Cascade, Montana, asked about fishing around Priest Rapids, which you just mentioned, which is, that's outside of the, the preserve, correct? Further downstream, yeah. you said. Yeah, yeah that, that's quite a bit downstream. You know, he was asking... Does it hold trout down there? Is there any decent fishing down there that you know of? Or? Yes, and there are a couple of the fly shops have some excellent YouTube videos that break down the different sections of the creek. And, oh, okay. And if you stop in the fly shops, they can give you the heads up. The one thing is that, you know, being so far downstream, it's more susceptible, you know, to summer heat. So it's better fish. You know, the farther downstream you go, the better the fishing is, either early in the season or sure. late in the season. And also, that Spring Creek system feeds so many insects. And as you get farther away from that, you don't have those profuse hatches, which can make the fishing a little easier, but you have less of a chance to hook a big one. Okay. Okay. Good. Good. Well, let's take a quick break here, and Matt and uh, we'll be right back, and we'll continue on talking about uh, Silver Creek. Muskie Town is so much more than a muskie fly shop. Whether you're a muskie fly fishing guide, an experienced muskie hunter, or just getting into predators on the fly, wherever life's adventures take you, Muskie Town's proven lineup helps you to be more successful on the water. They have rods, reels, lines, and flies for muskie, pike, and bass. Most of their flies are tied in-house, and they fish them at every possible opportunity so they know what works, why it works, and exactly what you need to put big fish in the net. Sit back and relax. Enjoy legendary fly shop service, and please let them know if there's anything that they can help you with. Next time you think of muskie, go to Muskie Town. That's muskytown.com, or call them at 763 763- 312-6012. Again, muskytown.com, 763-312-6012. 
You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We're talking with Matt Miller about Silver Creek, the legend and its future. If you'd like to ask Matt a question, just go to our homepage, askaboutflyfishing.com. Fill out that Q&A box, send us in your question, and we'll, uh, we'll try to answer it on the show tonight. So, Matt, I always ask my guests what's going on in your fly fishing world, and I know your world is conservation, but, you know, what's happening with you? Anything we need to know about what you've been up to? Yeah, well, I, I run the Nature Conservancy's online publication, Cool Green Science, and that I've been doing that for 10 years now, and so always looking for new stories, and I cover things going on around the Nature Conservancy, but I also cover, you know, nature you might see in your backyard, outdoor recreation, and yes, fishing. You can, you know, I always have stories in the works there. You mentioned in your introduction that I'm trying to catch a fish in every state, so I have that. I always have fishing goals, so I, mean, I actually, since I, I sent my bio to you, I've added one more, so I'm at 34 now. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I'll update that. Yeah, and, uh, Yeah, I, I'm trying to catch all the cutthroat trout subspecies. I only have one more left, the Paiute cutthroat, so if anyone out there can help me get that, it's the, the most difficult one. But, yeah, I, I always have fishing goals and writing goals, and they often overlap. But, you know, I, I love native fish and weird fish. And in my book, Fishing Through the Apocalypse, I, I fish in sewer ditches and hot springs and anywhere I can cast a line. Not much. Like, yeah, Silver Creek is not like any of those kinds of places, but I often, often my fishing gets very weird. Do you know uh, Jeff Courier? I know who he is. I've communicated with him by email, yes, yeah. Yeah, I mean, he's one that goes out looking for, trying to catch every fish that he possibly can, you know, different species. I don't know what he's up to now, but, I mean, it's hundreds of different species he's got on a on a fly, so he kind of fits in. The other guy that you, I don't know if you know, but probably want to talk to is Daniel Ritz. We did a show with him. I've done a bunch of shows with Jeff Courier. But I did a show with Daniel Ritz, and he went about attempting to accomplish the Master Caster class of Western Native Trout Challenge, and that's to catch 20 native trout species in their historical range. Yeah, and I think he was able to accomplish that. I don't know if he Yeah, yeah, Daniel's a great guy, and when we fish together, we we actually fish for red band trout together. And Oh, good. Yeah, good. yeah, that was an incredible journey that he did and yeah right right up my alley and yeah i think we'll be seeing a lot more from him yeah 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 so uh folks if you want to listen to that episode it's daniel ritz temps western native trout challenge and so you can search our archive for that and also jeff courier if you want to hear some pretty incredible stories about fly fishing for unusual species he's kind of the adventurous anyway just a sidebar there well, thanks for sharing that with us. And is there anything that people can help you with your writing out there as far as stories hit you up for, you know, here's something that's going on. Are you open to new topics, ideas kind of thing? Yes, I'm always looking for ideas and adventures. And I love to hear from readers and members and anyone interested. The Cool Grain Science blog is found at blog.nature.org. And you right. can comment there, and it's easy to find me that way. And 
I'm also on social media if you look up on Facebook or Twitter, Matthew L. Miller. So would love okay. to hear from you. Any ideas, thoughts, adventures you have? Wait, can you give us that uh, URL again for the, the blog? Yes, it's blog.nature.org. Blog.nature.org. So there you go, folks. If you'd like to see what's going on with Matt there and help him out with ideas and stuff, that I'm sure he'd appreciate it. So back to Silver Creek, what species are there to fish for there? The predominant species are rainbow trout and brown trout. They're both uh, there, are, okay. Yep, they're both there. The, some years brown trout are higher than others. Rainbow trout are still the, the most common species. I have caught brook trout in the creek, including on the preserve, hmm. not many but I've caught a few over the years. As you get downstream, I've seen, you know, the red side shiners and suckers, but as far as yeah. on the yeah, preserve, sure. it's uh, rainbow and brown trout. Okay, okay. What is public access like? Now, I'm, I'm assuming on the preserve, it's open to the public, right? But there's probably some restrictions or whatever. The preserve has? Yes. Yeah, and that has changed a bit in recent years. Silver Creek is a, a very popular fishery, and it is open to the public. You do have to register, but it's very easy. At, the, at any parking spot, there is a QR code, and you just you know, scan it with your phone, and then you can register that way. used to be you registered at the visitor center, but it's... Um, very easy. You scan the QR code and click a couple buttons, and you're good to go. And when you get to the creek, the change is that now there are, on the preserve, 34 fishing access points. So they're designated, they're marked, there's a map showing where they are. So partly because, you know, it is a spring creek, there were a lot of anglers visiting and you know no one wants to limit access or you know have a cap number of anglers and so to make sure that the whole creek wasn't being tramped down and there being erosion in the creek and people entering where there's high silt there are these 34 access points 30 of them are on the creek and four of them are on the slough known as Sullivan Lake and you can enter there, and then you can move up and down stream as you wish. We ask that you try to stay on gravel just to reduce erosion, but it's all done, one, to protect the ecology of the creek, but also to protect the visitor experience. Mm -hmm. um, there's no fee, to, no fee to visit, visit our preserve. However, of course, you know, donations are welcome. Sure, sure. The is it crowded? I mean, we know it's very popular, but and it does have a season which we can talk about. But is it considered crowded? You know, like during the the main hatches, you will see other anglers. I would say that there is a long-standing culture at Silver Creek of giving people space, and also the hatches are so profuse that 
you don't have to, you know, it isn't a place where you're walking, you know, from point to point fishing. You know, a lot of times you're going to be parked in a pretty specific area. I am someone by nature who avoids crowds and crowded fishing, and there have been, you know, some tailwaters that I fished 20 years ago that I've pretty much been driven off. You know, it's like right. the combat fishing scene. I have not found that at Silver Creek. Right. You know, that being right. said, there are times when it is more crowded, and there are stretches where at certain hatches it, it can be pretty crowded experience. But on the preserve, for the most part, you might see, be able to see other anglers, but it's not like you're shoulder to shoulder. Shoulder to shoulder, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, I've told this story before, but I grew up in Alaska, and my dad used to, and I used to go to this place called Bird Creek that was about 45 minutes out of Anchorage. And we go down there, and, you know, like a mile-long segment, we'd be the only two people fishing. And later in what, I think it was 2006, we went back up there. This was back in the 60s, okay, late 60s. Back in, in 2006, we went back there, went down there, and it was literally shoulder-to-shoulder fishing. You had to wait for somebody to step out so that you could take a spot. <laughs> wow. We turned around and got back in the car and said, forget it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, um, so I'm glad to hear it's not like that. Um, but some places in the world it is, you know, so... Yeah, yeah, I always have to ask. It's probably somewhat protected because of its location, too, right? I mean, it's not like it's in Yellowstone or something. But even Yellowstone you go to, and it's still, uh, there's still a lot of water that, and a lot of space I've found, you know, even during heavy fish times, you know. So that's, that's always encouraging. What about the general fish population health? Is it a healthy fishery? Is there a lot of fish there? Yeah. I mean, it, it is a tremendous fish population, and it does fluctuate, and fishing can vary year to year. And it's funny because some years it just seems to be on. You know, like everything is lined up, the hatches, the fish. But it remains such a prolific river because there is all this aquatic vegetation, that nourishes these aquatic insects that in turn feed the trout. And so if you fish during one of the main hatches, you can expect to see a lot of rising fish and, you know, like the water boiling kind of scenario. That being said, that's not to say that Silver Creek doesn't face, and its fish don't face challenges because there are challenges. Yeah, it's, um, you know, I've been on rivers at those moments when all of a sudden the fish start rising and you go, I can't believe there's that many fish in this river. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, like I've just been fishing here for an hour and getting nothing, and I've just, you know, I think 100 trout here rising in a small area, you know, and it, it kind of drives me crazy sometimes. <laughs> but, yeah. Um, yeah, it's like, where are all these fish? And all of a sudden they're there. Uh, but that's good to hear. That's good to hear. Are there trophy fish to be caught in there? I mean, what's what would you say would be a trophy fish for the the preserve? Yeah, yeah. There are there are some very large fish in there. They're very hard to catch. But 
I have seen, I have not caught a 27-inch brown, but I have seen them caught. Um, really nice, fat, healthy rainbows. So I think, yeah, I won't say the sky's the limit, but you can. They're in there. They're, they're in, in there. there. They're in yeah. there. And, yeah. yeah, really, there are times when there are large pods of just really nice fish feeding. Yeah, like. It's one thing to have the water boiling, and that's just a cool spectacle, but it can be unnerving when it's, you know, you're surrounded by really nice fish feeding. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's bad enough that there's a lot, but then when they're big, that, that even compounds the frustration, yeah. Did, um, and it's all catch and release there, I'm assuming, right? Yes, it is. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, and barbless fly and single fly. Okay. And single fly, okay. One fly on the preserve. Time. That's right. Yeah, right, right. Greg Nichols from Loxley, Alabama, wrote in and says, "I'm coming down, coming from down south. When would be a good time to book a trip to Silver Creek? Spring, summer, or fall? Uh, and there is a, a season there, right? Of when the, the preserve's open to fishing. That is correct. So it, the, on the preserve, it is Memorial Day to November 30th. Okay, it is the okay. season and even other sections have some of them. Some sections of Silver Creek allow winter fishing, but most of the creek is closed March to Memorial Day. Okay. So I summertime, you have the classic hatches and what I consider the classic Silver Creek experience. It is when it is more crowded. Fall is just an absolutely lovely time mm -hmm. where you will not have crowds, and the hatches are sparser, but there are still betas coming off. You can fish terrestrials, and but the aspens are turning. There are there's right. sandhill cranes overhead. You might hear elk bugling. I mean, it, it from an aesthetic standpoint, you can't beat it. Um, yeah. But if you want to see the blizzard hatches and be surrounded by, you know, feeding fish, then, you know, late, you know, mid to late June through August, you're going to have a good chance to experience that. Yeah, yeah. I always consider, you know, in the Rockies, September, October, just two of the best months of the year for fishing and for other things, just being outside. I always cherish those months so yeah great time of year to be be out there um take a a quick break here again and then we'll come back in and talk about some of the challenges that are facing the creek and then we'll end the show with talking about how to fish it and get your tips on uh, how best to fish uh, silver creek so hang tight we'll be right back Pico-Puglisi flies pride themselves with creating unique and one-of-a-kind flies and fly-tying material. Enrico has been experimenting with durable synthetic and natural materials to create flies that catch fish for more than 20 years. His innovative products, including brushes, fibers, and components, have made major impact on the direction of saltwater fly fishing, and his methods and materials are respected worldwide. Whether you want your flies hand-tied for you or would like to tie your own, be sure to visit Enrico Puglisi flies and browse through their online catalog. Visit epflies.com and do a little shopping today. Again, that's epflies.com. 
You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We're talking with Matt Miller about Silver Creek. If you'd like to ask Matt a question, just go to our homepage, askaboutflyfishing.com. Fill out that form, send us your question, and we'll try to get it answered on the show here tonight. Okay, so we had uh, here's one comment that came in, uh, Matt. It was more, it's just more of a comment. He says, "I was at Silver Creek two weeks ago, and Priest had very few fish holding, but the Conservancy was a religious experience." <laughs> so, <laughs> there you go. So little little commentary from and the guys from Louisville, Colorado. Okay. Bill, I'm going to hold your question because it's kind of off topic, but if we have time, we'll come back to that. Yeah, we'll talk about this stuff in a minute, Treg, because I got that kind of lined up in a question. One question that Treg in Moscow, Idaho asks, he says, is there a time of day that is best? Is it a gentleman creek where you start at (laughs) mid-morning? Yes, it actually is. And um, yeah, it is. And this kind of leads a little into the challenge, but in 2021, the creek warmed. It was warmer and lower than it had ever been, and the Nature Conservancy actually shut down access in July into August because of that. It was just putting too much stress on the creek. First time in history that that section of creek had been closed. But the reason I mention that is when it reopened, you actually couldn't fish until 9 a.m. And a lot of times when we think of closures on streams, you know, like there's, they call them the hoodow closures. And so you have to fish very early. Um, At Silver Creek, because of all that vegetation, the oxygen levels actually increase during the day. But um, in any case, there's no need to be there at the crack of dawn. The trico hatch, which we can talk to when we get to the fishing tips more in depth, it's, to my mind, the classic preserve hatch. Blizzards and mayflies, but mid-morning is the time to be there. But but fishing terrestrials throughout the day and then fishing into the evening is also good. But it's not a place you have to be up at uh, the crack of dawn. Crack of dawn, yeah, yeah. There's there's a lot of places like that that actually don't fish well early in the morning that I found out. I mean, you kind of say, you know, when do the guides go on the river, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, one time we got to San Juan, we said, oh, all the guides are getting there at like, you know, 8.30. Let's get there at 7.30 and beat all the guides. We got down there, and, and we weren't catching anything. It was because the, the hatches hadn't, the water hadn't warmed enough for the hatches to get going. The guides knew that. We didn't know that. <laughs> well, we learned quick, you know. So, yeah, sometimes they don't fish well. So let's talk about the history, you know, Nature Conservancy's history with Silver Creek. You gave us a little bit of background on that, but since the the Conservancy has taken over the property there, uh, can you tell us about what's transpired and how the Conservancy has gotten involved? Yeah, I, I think in many ways it mirrors the Nature Conservancy's approach to conservation. So in 1976, it bought, you know, the 476 acres that then was Silver Creek Preserve. And at that time, 
it was almost like mission accomplished. That was the a lot of the mindset, like we buy it and it is protected and we're good. And as a matter of fact, in its early years, the Nature Conservancy had as its slogan, preserving living museums of primeval nature. And I think that's very telling because like a museum is kind of set, right? Like it, it's an exhibit almost. Right. The reality is that nature doesn't work that way and the nature of threats doesn't work that way. And so you, you can't just say conservation is never a point where you say we're done here. I mean, there will never be that point. And so partly it was expanding the boundaries of the preserve. Today it's 881 acres. It's conservation easements that I mentioned, but it's also recognizing that you know you can't even escape global level threat. The trend is warmer and drier summers. The trend is more demand for water in south central Idaho. And thinking of ways to make Silver Creek resilient in the face of inevitable change because the, you know, the planet changes and specific areas change. And right now, the Nature Conservancy is in the midst of a five-year restoration plan a lot of that focused on tributary streams like the tributary Stalker Creek, removing sediment, deepening the channel, and doing things to make ensure that the water remains cooler. And since I've been working for the Conservancy, there have been a number of restoration projects because, again, it even though when you go drive Kilpatrick Bridge Road, you come up this hill, and it gives you this view of the preserve, and you look down on it, and it's the one that you know you often see in magazines, on calendars. It's right. this postcard, yeah. perfect view, and you think, like, this place is just pristine. You know, it's like the um, earlier comment, it's a religious experience. You know, I've, I've right. felt that. But part of that is also, like, a hands-off approach, in an era when humans influence everything is just not realistic. You know, it isn't like you can just put a fence around it and say, like, okay, now things will stay the same. And so restoration activities like the ones being undertaken right now are an important part of Silver Creek's future for the ecology of the stream. But I think an important component about it is it, it's for us, too. And I, one of the reasons I'm proud to work for the Nature Conservancy is that we recognize people as being a part of this. And so there are ranchers along Silver Creek, and we have worked with them. Fishing guides, it's their business, and we work with them. And people visit from all over the world, and they value this place. And so... The work isn't just benefiting the birds and the trout. It, it's benefiting people, too. Yeah, yeah. I think in the, you know, I read the article that you wrote, folks, if you want to look this one up, February, March issue, 2022. Uh, Matt wrote an article on Silver Creek, which is the reason I called him, to ask him to be on the show. 
But I think in there, Matt, you talk about these tributaries, and it kind of like made me think the other day um, because you were saying, well, they're going to remove some of the sediment, make it deeper, plant trees to kind of shade the water to keep it cooler. And what came to my mind, and it's kind of a tough question for you, but what happens when that doesn't work anymore? In other words, <laughs> the aquifers dry up, the, 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 it's so hot that the trees don't help, and the, the digging of you know the sediment out and making it deeper doesn't help. I mean, I, I look at I don't want to be – I'm kind of pessimistic about this, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> it's like at a certain point, you know, there's probably not stuff we can do anymore, you know, if it gets too warm. And the water, I mean, the Mississippi River, I've been seeing pictures about that. I mean, whoever thought the Mississippi River would be in the, the situation it is now, it just makes me, you know, kind of cringe thinking forward as to no matter what we do, are we are we doomed? I, I don't think. I mean, there are going to be changes and losses. I mean, there have been already, right? In my book, I open the book along the creek that ran through family property of my youth, and it's been biologically dead for four generations. And mm. and that water, at one point, had enough migratory shad going up it. This is the time of the American Revolution that it supported commercial fisheries, right. hundreds of thousands of fish. And so at that time, if we were to see that water now, I mean, back then we would think like this is amazing. You know, there would have been brook trout and, you know, eels and it would have seemed like paradise. Right. The benefit now is, you know, we've seen those losses and hopefully we don't think that a place like Silver Creek is just its mission accomplished and we don't have to worry about it. But the community there values Silver Creek. And yes, the water demands are increasing, but I think the Nature Conservancy has been involved in ways that we could buy water and work on water agreements to keep it in the creek. But that's still, in the really long term, I think all of society has some hard decisions to make. But I do think focusing on resilience. So, you know, some places are better equipped to deal with a warming, drier world. And I think yeah. Idaho, because there are still really big landscapes and space for critters of all kinds to move around, that enables the critters to move around. And so, yeah, you know, Decades from now, will it look exactly the same? Absolutely not. It doesn't look the same now, no. uh, you know, as when I first started fishing there. And, but I think I see hope in the fact that people do love this place. You know, it's not a museum. And people care about it because it isn't just behind glass. They've had that religious experience. They've had those days when they've been frustrated, when they've seen lots of big trout, and and they've also seen positive changes. Like Ernest Hemingway would not have seen a moose there. Now you have a very good chance of seeing a moose when you go to Silver Creek. Yeah, there are, you know, even in the valley I live in here in Colorado, you know, in the past 10 years we've, you know, you just brought up moose, but um, 
we see them more and more frequently and uh, as well as bear. <laughs> so, you know, it's like those two animals 10 years ago, you hardly ever saw. So, you know, there are positive aspects of that. I, I just think as water is so precious and, you know, I've got a friend, Terry Gunn, who uh, owns Lee's Ferry Anglers and they fish, you know, below the Glen Canyon Dam there. And that water is warming. And, and the fact is that if it gets too warm, the brown trout won't be able to live there anymore. And so they're talking about that it could potentially be turned into a smallmouth bass fishery, you know. Yeah. So uh, I guess we'll have to adjust one way or another. But, yeah, some things are kind of out of our control. And, you know, I guess we'll have to go with the flow, for lack of a better term. But a um, couple of questions here, and then let's jump into fishing the creek. Phil McCartney in Kentucky said, what issues impacting Silver Creek should be of concern to everyone wherever they live? Uh, shouldn't all waters be regarded as home waters? I absolutely think we we need to regard all waters as home waters. I think that's an excellent way of putting it. And we've talked about some of those large-scale issues. I think even 30 years ago, the idea that we'd have to worry about water in, in Silver Creek probably would have seemed like something to worry about down the road, but it, it's it's here right now. And Silver Creek has had years when the temperature has inched up and there's been concerns, but I think it's going to be an issue we have to pay attention to. And again, there are probably down the road some difficult decisions, but right now I think building that resilience, which this ambitious restoration plan is doing, offers a, a lot of hope for the creek. And, uh, you know, I want to emphasize it's been fishing really well. Mm-hmm. When it reopened last year, I went there. You know, I was there at 9 o'clock when it opened during the trico hatch, and and for the rest of that season, the fishing was off the charts. I mean, it, and I had some unbelievable moments, like where it was like, am I at Silver Creek? You know, just because, like, it wasn't as difficult as it usually is. But then, you know, like, this summer, it seemed more difficult, but plenty of rising fish. So... I don't feel gloomy about it. I just think we need to have our eyes open that there are challenges big and small that we need to address. But I think fly fishers and Nature Conservancy members have a long history of stepping up to the challenge. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting. You know, you said it it fished really great after the, the pause. And you know, I noticed that in other parts of the world, too, like in Belize, because I have friends down there and fishing guides. And, you know, uh, during COVID, those fish got a big rest. And then when the when the fishing opened up again and the country opened up again, fishing was really good. <laughs> yeah. so I think giving them a rest wherever they are in the world helps, too, you know, because they hope I think they have like short memories for a while. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> and they go, oh, yeah. That's right. We are fish. They are. There are fly fishers out there. What observation? Uh, Ed Constantini wrote in a, a nice long piece here. He says, "Hi, Matt. With warming temperatures affecting our cold water fisheries, some of which Silver Creek experienced this past summer, 
what more can you do as the Director of Science Communications for the Nature Conservancy to further visit anglers' awareness about the dangers of rising temperatures, and what can each of us do on a personal basis to help ensure our fisheries will be able to sustain themselves as temperatures continue to rise? Yeah, I think, one, like having conversations like this and, you know, really, like even getting questions like this show like how much fly anglers do care. And, mm-hmm. you know, people feel very strongly about Silver Creek. It was closed but last summer, but the community supported it. Fly anglers supported that. And partly it's also recognizing that we all have a role to play in protecting fisheries. And what might seem like a small action you know, when you add it up, has a big effect. And, you know, I talked about the angler access points. Mm -hmm. One one way that the creek stays cooler is by having that vegetation and by ensuring that there is an erosion. And so it's a change to have these specific places where you can enter the creek. And Silver Creek is tradition-bound. But there is going to have to be changes in behavior for us to protect this resource and still have the great fishing we expect. And I think anglers understand that, that that yes, we have these traditions, but we can also adapt the the circumstances for the betterment of the fishery. Mm -hmm. I think many of us have begun thinking about you know, like fight times, you know, when we're fighting a fish. Right. And what what happens after that, or how we photograph fish. There's been, you know, there's a lot of discussion. I think there's still work and awareness to be done. But I've seen a lot of anglers embrace that. You know, like, you know, guides saying, we aren't going to be taking the fish out of the water. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, like maybe instead of using... 8x ticket tip it we're going to have to fool them with you know, something that allows us to fight them harder right right yeah yeah and i think uh, i think uh, you're right i think a lot of us are aware of those things and are doing more and more we're just realizing we can't do what we used to do you know in so many ways and using a super light tippet and fighting the fish for you know, 10 minutes or something, as opposed to just getting them in quickly, can make a huge difference. I read somewhere recently, which was really surprising to me, but I think it was something like, even with catch and release, that something to the, the like, 30% of the fish we release die. And I don't know if that's true or not. Maybe you have some statistics on that. But, but that's what I read, and I was like, wow, that's a big percentage in my mind. Considering yeah. we're, you know, yeah, and I, I, you know, it varies a lot on conditions and species, and I think it's something as anglers we have to address. I saw a study recently. This is not fly fishing, but like shore-based fishing for sharks, and there are species where the mortality of a released fish is as high as seventy percent. Well, oh, at that boy. point, like, why? even release, you know. Um, yeah. And I think for trout fishing, especially if 
you're using barbless flies and not you know, holding them out of the water for minutes. You know, the the release rates can be quite high. And yeah, I mean, you know, sometimes I see people online. They're arguing like, well, you know, like catch and release doesn't work, and you know, therefore we should be able to just keep fish. And, and I, I mean, but I think intuitively most of us know, like if. Silver Creek had harvest rules, the fishing would not be as good. Oh, forget it, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Like yeah. we all, and, yeah, I'm not to belabor that point, but it, it's maintained excellent fishing with catch and release. But I yeah, do I think, think you have to be, you know, you have to think about fish care. Yeah. Yeah, and I think when you talk about harvesting, you know, any fishery that starts allowing that turns into a, kind of a put-and-take fishery, in my mind, you know, that has to be stocked to keep up with the demand, you know, and there's there's a place for that in the world, too, but hopefully not Silver Creek. <laughs> so, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Let's end the show on a, on a real positive note. Talk about the fishing there, because I know people want to know about that. And Chug in Moscow, Idaho, wrote in here on the Internet, he was asking about whether uh, a float tube can be used on the creek. I know you've talked about waiting, but uh, is that an option? It is. On the, the preserve, it is as you get to the lower end of the preserve, float tubes become feasible um, because okay. the water slows down a bit. It's more pool-like. In the upper ends of the preserve, it's moving along. You know, the water, it's fairly shallow, you know, relatively shallow and easily wadeable. But you can use float tubes, lower end of the preserve, and you know, some of the fishing game properties. What weight rods would you recommend to bring? I use a, a five weight if your, um, you know, Dry flies are the classic, and we can talk about that more in a bit. But some people do like, you know, throwing streamers, especially on some of the fishing game properties. There's some nice underhangs. Then you would want a, a six-weight. I've used a four-weight and not felt undergone. But I think one of the one of my own reminders to my the things I have to remind myself is yes, it's a difficult fishery, but it's not big water, and so don't overthink it. You know, like if you uh, you really don't need specialized equipment to be successful there. And that might seem counterintuitive, but it, you know, it's not big water. And there are lots of fish. And so if you are making super long, you know, rocketing out casts on Silver Creek, you might want to stop and look around because you're probably not going to have success and you're probably going about it all wrong. Okay. What about terminal tackle? What's, what's your usual setup for leader and tippet? Yeah, I do. I do use, you know, six... 5X, 6X tippet, especially during the, the trico hatch. You know, partly it depends on what's hatching. 
you know, it is a classic dry fly creek, and there are exceptions to that, but, you know, for most visitors, you're going to be encountering hatches, quite profuse hatches, and so, you know, and the fish are very finicky. They've seen it all. They have a lot of insects to choose from, and so, you know, it is a, a place where light tippets are the order of the day. What are some of the hatches that you should be prepared to fish? Yeah, so I mentioned previously the trico hatch. It's right. my favorite. It can look like snow in reverse when they're coming off, and then there's the spinner fall, which looks like you are being snowed on. These are very small flies, you know, 22, you know, sometimes even smaller. I am not by nature, you know, one of these people who's frantically changing flies when I go fishing. I often think, you know, it's more technique, but at Silver Creek, I fish differently. Like if I am not getting a hit, I will... I will change, and I will spend some time looking at the surface of the water. And sometimes things are not what they appear. And probably my favorite example of that is a couple years ago, I was fishing the trichos, not really having much luck. And I got down close to the water, and I noticed that there were quite large pale morning duns mixed in with the clusters of trichos. So I, I tied on a pale morning dun, and I saw this pod of, you know, nice-sized feeding fish and cast and just completely botched the cast. I mean, it was ugly. Fly slapped down, and I saw the wakes that I expected. But the weird thing was the wakes weren't going away from my fly. They were charging it. Like the multiple, multiple big fish, and one of them took it. Well, I was so shocked, you know, I I missed. But I laid out another pale morning done, same thing. One immediately took it, and I caught several fish out of that pot. And then I started thinking, like, how many times have I been here, like going through my trico box? And they were actually just eating something else mixed in. And so, you know, it, it's a place to really pay attention to entomology. Another favorite hatch is the brown drakes. And the brown drakes are, you know, a size 10 or larger <laughs> mayfly. Yeah. Very large fish gorge on them. One of the interesting aspects of that hatch is that it does not occur on the preserve. It occurs on the more silty sections. The Point of Rock section and Silver Creek West, both of which have public access and primitive camping, so you can camp out there. They're run by the Idaho Department of Fish and Game, but they have excellent hatch, uh, fishing during the Brown Drake Hatch. Um, it is, I think, the easiest hatch to fish because fish are just gorging. They aren't particularly selective. 
However, it is without doubt the most crowded. And a lot of what I said earlier where it, it is almost combat fishing. People are very respectful and you will have feeding fish in front of you. And it is just a great spectacle to see. I mean, there are huge mayflies that are coming off in swarms. Um, and then a lot of the standard western hatches, you know, pale morning duns, betas, and terrestrials throughout the summer, including hoppers and damselflies, kind of round out the Silver Creek scene. Yeah, you, the, you had also mentioned uh, mice, using mice as a, an effective pattern there. Yes, and there can actually be, I call it this, the vole hatch. So voles are, you know, a lot of people call them field mice, and they're prone to population explosions. And when that happens, which is not often, you know, but if you are there when that happens, I mean, you'll hear fish feeding on them. Now, the preserve is closed at night, but you can fish the fishing game properties mm -hmm. at night. Mark Davidson, a former colleague of mine, he caught a 27-inch brown on a, a vole pattern. And the vole, you know, the voles, you know, they're hard on farm fields, but it's another crazy phenomenon just because everything's there eating them, you know, coyotes and hawks and owls and the trout. And Fishing Game did some sampling just to, you know, see the health of the fishery. And so they they killed a few fish to take stomach samples. And one time they pulled out this brown trout and it had three voles in its stomach. Oh, oh goodness. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so... Yeah, you get fat quick eating that, that much protein. <laughs> yes, and that's probably why you often don't catch the really big browns during the trico hatch. Because, yeah. um, you know, you can catch some really nice rainbows, but when the browns get that big, they are highly predatory. Yeah, yeah. Steve Du Bois wrote in, uh, I'll read his, his piece here, he says, I've fished uh, Silver Creek several times over the years. It, it is one of the places uh, in North America. I always stop on my way to from Boise to Idaho Falls. I have successfully landed fish on most of the trips, but have missed some of the biggest trout sight fishing and out of excitement pulled the fly out of their mouth as I watched, watched the meat. He says, my question is this. Everything I see and hear about Silver Creek is matched to hatch. Long leaders, small tippet, and tiny flies. Yes, I always buy a dozen at peekaboo anglers, but he says, why not use flies that they do not see day in and day out? Uh, my last large trout out of Silver Creek was on a fluorescent orange popper, and as I was using a bobber indicator to drift midges under the surface uh, at the waiter watching area, and he says she was a pig. So this kind of goes back to your, your pale morning done on a trico hatch, it sounds like. Maybe showing something different is a possibility, huh? Yeah, I, that is an excellent comment, Steve, and I think you're spot on. And I think it also goes back to my, my earlier comment about 
not overthinking Silver Creek either. And I think sometimes we walk into, you know, this is what's going on and this is what I must do and I must imitate, you know, a size 22 Trico cripple and make the perfect cast and then you swat down a big fly and a fish immediately takes it. So it is a match the hatch kind of place, but I think mixing it up is a great idea. And another recent thing I did was I had spooked some fish, but I saw they move, and it was in this like deep trough, and I saw they they moved right back in there. But they had stopped feeding on top, and I and it was getting late in the morning. The hatch was pretty much winding down. I thought I'd call it a morning, and then I thought, you know, I'm just going to drift a scud down through there and see what happens. And it was very similar to that pale morning dawn, like immediately hooked up. And, you know, these are fish on Silver Creek that I had spooked, you know, a couple minutes earlier. And, you know, 20 years ago, I would have thought, you know, I ruined this pool for the next several hours and walked away from it. But I think keeping in mind, you know, they are still fish and, you know, mixing it up sometimes can really pay off. I've I've also, you know, like tied on a big damselfly, you know, in the middle of a trico hatch and had fish scattering as if I had, you know, like slapped the water with a a staff. So it doesn't always, you know, it isn't always work out that way. But I think experimenting, especially if you're having one of those mornings when you just can't make something happen. And, and I've had weekends like that where it's like nothing you know, like even like fish, like just up there in their mouth opening and closing is, you know, faster than I can say this. And then my fly drifts over, they dip down under my fly and then come back up and start. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. The things to frustrate you, no doubt. So um, you had mentioned, you know, floating a scud down there. Is nymphing effective? I mean, I, you had mentioned all the vegetation. Is it still other places you can nymph? Yeah, I mean, that was a deep trough, but it is fairly limited because of that rich aquatic life. Yeah. And also, you know, with the, the one fly rule, you, you know, you can't use a dropper. Right, right. So the yeah. the nymphing opportunities, you know, not non-existent, but and I think it is a good option if you find a, a deep hole. And what I have done is I don't use additional weight. Like I use the like the scud. It had a bead head, but I didn't use additional weight. I didn't use an indicator and just, you know, kind of dead drifted it down through. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, now, what, if you could kind of talk specifically to 
something that makes Silver Creek hard to fish. Is there any one thing, or is it just uh, a combination of things that make it such a – I mean, its reputation is that, you know, you, you know it, you're going to have a tough time <laughs> fishing there. But yet you've talked about days that where, you know, it's uh, – you can't miss. So what makes it what, – what gives it that tough fishery reputation? Well, I think – in part because it's often true, and not yeah, so it, it's that combo of crystal clear water, fish that have seen a lot of flies, and that have a lot of natural flies to choose from. you know they you know sometimes those trichos can be covering the surface. So they have a lot of naturals to pick yeah. from. And I've hosted fishing writers and well-traveled anglers. And many times, like in our time together, they've left, you know, like loving the place, but also gritting their teeth. Like, oh, I did not think it was actually going to live up to that reputation. Yeah. But yeah. I often point out, I consider myself a very enthusiastic and persistent angler, but I can be a, I, you know, my technical skills, I, I'm probably ranked near the bottom of people you've had on this show. And, and I still have great days there, you know, I, yeah. you know I, and, and part of it is persistence and, you know, not immediately like pulling your hair out when things don't go, yeah, when you have a lot of feeding fish around you. Yeah, yeah. The uh, I got two more questions. We're kind of running over here, but let me put these two more questions out to you, and then we'll we'll call it a night. Matt in Colorado, Fugazi, Matt Fugazi, says, besides the downstream and across and, uh, or straight downstream presentation for dry flies, what is your recommended or favorite dry fly presentation for rising fish in Silver Creek? Yeah, I mean, a, a lot of it is downstream, but I would say this. So if you are lucky enough to get there during one of the, the major hatches, you know, at first it looks like a very tranquil stream, you know, like you kind of imagine it. You know, it, it isn't like one of these places with lots of, like, riffles and, you know, there's a big rock pointing out and all that. It, it's... It looks, the water looks almost flat, you know, and it's clear. And so you kind of think of it as a uniform current, but that's not the case. Like that vegetation and just subtle changes in the, the stream bed mean that there, there's a lot going on. And so whatever your cast, I think there there's great promise in just saying, okay, I'm surrounded by rising fish, but I'm going to take a moment and really understand what's going on here. Look at the currents, look at the flies on the surface, and then determine what the best way to get you know, a drag-free drift of that trout is. And it might not be, you know, be what convention says, but just just be an observant angler. Mm -hmm. 
I think it's always good. However you fish, it, it's good to spend time observing the water. But all everything you know, I think, comes to a test at, at Silver Creek. And how well you can read, like, oh, like there's this little seam that those flies get caught in, and then they float through in that that way, and then just figuring out how to how to get the fly to those fish. And also, if you, you do spook them, and you'll notice this is a recurring theme, don't walk away dejected, because while they are very wary, they're also like kind of used to that whole scene. And mm. so they often <clears throat> will resume feeding relatively quickly. And so then it's like, okay, I can't do what I just did. Um, and I've also had the instances where they don't spook at all. They just continue feeding, and you can, you try, can again. try. <laughs> yeah, you can try again. Yeah. And yeah. what I have found is a lot of times, what you're doing wrong is not what you think. Yeah, you know, like just you know, it is the fly, or um, you know, maybe just taking a quiet step to your left so you can get a slightly better angle on those fish. Right, in the right, right. Well, I think I had one more question uh, from Barb Smith in Phoenix, Arizona, but I think you probably answered her question. So, and uh, I think that's what you, your, your comments just now are a good way to end the show. So, uh, uh, to try to figure out Silver Creek. I think you just gave him a lot of good tips, and next thing is to just go try, right? Yeah. <laughs> Give it a shot. Give it a shot. Yeah. Yeah. If you you see me out there, please say hi and <laughs> and feel free to drop me a line if you're planning a trip. Oh yeah, great. Yeah, yeah. So everybody, follow him on uh, blog. What is it again? Blog. Nature. Org nature.org you can follow matt uh, miller there and uh and maybe connect with him sometime out there that that, that would be great well thanks matt stick with us we're not done yet we're going to give away some prizes and i'm going to involve you in that so hang in there and uh we'll do that right now we're going to give away a one-year membership to fly fishers international one-year membership to trout unlimited and also a giveaway book from uh, courtesy of stackpole books so Stick with us just a couple more minutes, and we'll be done with the, the evening here. Do you travel to fish? Medical and security emergencies happen. When they do, you can rely on Global Rescue, the world's leading membership organization, providing integrated medical, security, travel risk, and crisis response services to travelers worldwide. Without a Global Rescue membership, an emergency evacuation could cost you more than $100,000. That's why over $1 million Members trust Global Rescue to get them home when the worst happens. Don't travel without Global Rescue. Memberships start just $129. Learn more about Global Rescue's program. Just click on the Global Rescue icon in the footer of our website, askaboutflyfishing.com, or you may also see it in the right-hand column as well. So check out Global Rescue the next time you're traveling to go fish. Just a reminder to everyone, before you leave our website tonight, please take a minute and give us your feedback about the show. You can find a link on our homepage in the section there to tonight's show that says, what did you think of the show? Just click on the link and leave your comments. We'd really appreciate it. Well, now it's time to give away our prizes. If the winners for our drawings are randomly selected from the show's registration database, if 
you didn't register for tonight's show, it's too late now, but make sure you do so for our next show so you don't miss out on some of these great prizes we have. If you are the lucky winner, we'll contact you after the show and provide you with information on how to receive your prize. So the first thing we're giving away is one-year membership to Fly Fishers International. And to learn more about FFI, go to flyfishersinternational.org, flyfishersinternational.org. And our winner for that is, now oh, where did I, let's see, get my database up here and going. Um, we've got, okay, looks like, Looks like Philip Richer. Philip Richer is our winner for the uh, the one-year membership to Fly Fishers International. So congratulations, Philip. And now let me press the magic button here again. And it looks like the Trout Unlimited membership goes to Carl Carl Palmer. Carl Palmer. So congratulations to both of you. And we'll uh, contact you after the show and arrange for you to get your membership started. So now we'll give away a book courtesy of Stackpole Books. And um, I'm going to throw in another option here because I think I can do it. If you aren't interested in uh, the, any of the books on the list or regardless of what the books on the list that I send you, I think I can also get from Lions Press a copy of Matt's book. And uh, so if you're interested in his, Matt, why don't you just tell folks about your book and what it's about so they can understand a bit more. Yeah, so it's called Fishing Through the Apocalypse, and it's a, a series of fishing adventures across the United States, each with a that looks at a conservation issue. But you know, as I mentioned, you know, it ranges from blue ribbon trout streams to fishing in sewer ditches and everything in between. In between, yeah, great. Well, so and the the name is again Fishing Through the Apocalypse. Fishing through the apocalypse. Okay, so here's the question. And you use that form on our homepage to put in your answer, uh, your name and your location, and the first person gets it right wins. What, what year did the Nature Conservancy first get involved and purchase uh, the property for Silver Creek? What year was that? So I'll give it a minute or so here. Matt, uh, a lot of people are typing, um, and uh, I've got 74 as the first answer. Is that correct? Not quite. Not quite. Okay, sorry, Treg, <laughs> missed it. <laughs> Sounds like you might have been close, but uh, I got another one here, 1976. That is correct. That is correct, and that's Jeff Pickles. Picklesheimer, Picklesheimer uh, in Twin Falls. So uh, congratulations, Jeff. I have your your email address. That's all I need for right now. I will send you an email to see if what books you want, and then uh, I'll get your address and so forth then uh, to get it sent out to you. So, uh, Treg, you, you got it right the second time. <laughs> but, <laughs> but Jeff beat you to the punch on that one. So anyway, hey, thanks, everybody, for playing and, and paying attention. and being here tonight and listening to our great guest, Matt Miller. And thank you, Matt, for being here with us. I uh, really appreciate taking time out of, I know you, your busy schedule to, to spend it with us, so we greatly appreciate that. Well, thanks so much, and thanks to all your listeners for the great questions. Uh, have a, a great 
fall there and hope you get to fish Silver Creek a few more times before the, the season ends. So I plan to do so. Hopefully you have all found the podcast archive on our website. If you haven't, just look for the link on the top line of our menu. Uh, in the archive, you'll find all of our past shows, over 360-some shows. Uh, you can search by keywords, such as Silver Creek, Trout, Madison River, Tarpon, whatever you want, and you're going to find shows on those subjects. So check it out, and uh, I'm sure you'll find something that will pique your interest there and uh, that you'll enjoy. Our next broadcast is going to be on November 2nd, 7 p.m. Mountain, 9 p.m. Eastern Time. That show I'm going to interview Adam Corneth, and our topic for the show will be Mastering Muskie on the Fly. Adam is obsessed with muskie. He's been fishing for muskie for over 25 years and has caught muskie in the United States and Canada. He's also built a company called Muskie Town, which is devoted to helping fly anglers catch more muskie on the fly. Join us to learn Adam's secrets to mastering muskie on the fly. Uh, you can add this upcoming show to your calendar. If you look on our homepage, just below Adam's picture there, you see add the calendar button. Just click on that, and you'll be able to add it to whatever calendar you're using, and you'll be all set. We'd like to thank Fly Fishers International, Trout Unlimited, Stackpole Books, Muskie Town, Global Rescue, and Gills Fly Fishing International, and Enrico Puglisi Flies for sponsoring our show tonight. Uh, don't forget to visit our website, askaboutflyfishing.com, and make sure you're signed up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. Thanks for listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We hope you enjoyed the show. That's it. Good night, everyone, and good fishing.